You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 2012 film, John Carter. So, get ready for a lot of strange-sounding names, because boy, does this story have a whole bunch of them. But this is based on the first novel of the famous Edgar Rice Burroughs stories of John Carter of Mars. And John Carter is a Confederate Civil War veteran. And after the war, he sort of becomes uh, kind of a soldier of fortune, soldier of fortune, mercenary, very Han Solo, if you will. Yes. And uh, he finds he's thinks he finds this gold mine out somewhere in Arizona. But at the time, he is the U.S. Cavalry is trying to conscript him, but he's had enough of war. He just wants to get this personal fortune. So he. There's a big cavalry kind of battle, or he gets captured, or he escapes from the cavalry fort, and there's a fight, shootout sort of with the Apaches, but he makes it to the cave, or while yeah. he's there, this, there's this, there's all these strange uh, cave drawing things, and the, yeah. even the Apaches don't want anything to do yeah. with that cave, they run away from it, and while he's there, this guy was... Um, cre- uh, almost alien-looking guy in this white robe, bald head, just appears out of nowhere and sees John Carter but tries to kill him. Carter gets into a fight, kills that guy. He touches the medallion, and he, it transports him to Mars. Yes. And uh, he s- sort of realizes one of the things is that, obviously, the gravity's much more different than on Earth. So even just a little bit of yeah. walking can carry him farther he ju- can jump great heights yeah and this it's it's i like the way the film deals with this part of the story and it does it twice actually and in another connection we'll probably talk about later but uh he at first doesn't he's he's like a kid learning how to walk or run and he can't he can't do it properly mm-hmm. and he keeps stumbling and falling but he's realizing that uh, he's got what, to all intents and purposes, is uh, kind of like a, a superpower with regard to being able to jump and leap. Now, uh, that I think that I think that's very interesting because yeah, uh, that's taken directly from the book. From the book, yeah, yeah. and it, so that's a testament to Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, being familiar, you know, basically with a. Uh, uh, Newton's law of gravitation and how how uh, gravitation and different uh, bodies of different mass will be uh, will uh, vary right now he was wrong in assuming it would be so uh, have such a a va- make such a vast difference on Mars to where he could leap the distances we see in this film um, but uh, you know we've seen uh, similar footage of the astronauts on the moon figuring out how to hop about and stuff because of 
the le- less gravity there. So I thought that was very clever. I liked that part yeah. of the film. And he stumbles upon like this birthing sort of chamber thing with these eggs. Yeah. And that's where he meets the Tharks. Yes. Yes, Tharks. They're these tall green Martians, about yes. 15 feet high. They have tusks out, you know, on the side of their mouths. Yep. And they have a strange language. And one of the leaders is Tars Tarkas. Mm-hmm. He's the head of it. And he's sort of, they, they think he's a, um, harming the eggs, but they, they realize, especially with his jumping ability, that they don't know what he is because they've never seen anybody like him before. Yep. And so they sort of capture him, and they sort of treat him somewhat as like this, you know, carnival sideshow. Yes. Like, you know, Tarkas is always trying to get him to jump. Right. And while they're taking him, he witnesses this firefight, because we get this uh, sort of... Before we get to John Carter, we get this sort of um, prologue highlighting the struggles between the Martians, another group of Martians called the Therns. Yes. And there's this power struggle. The main bad guy is Saab Than, and he's the Jeddak of Zodanga. And they are the... There's two big ta- uh, cities. city states. Yeah, one's Zodanga yeah. and one is Helium. That's sort of the good Martians, right? And um, Dejan Thoris is the good, the, the, good, good. the good human Martians. We should yeah. say uh, they're they're uh, the ones red, the others blue, right? And and they are they are the humans. And uh, uh, Tharks are humanoid-ish, but they are also apparently uh, patterned after uh, reptiles. Um, although I looked it up in the, in the uh, you know, I, lo- I looked up some information on the series. It, it, uh, apparently, according to Edgar Rice Burroughs, all of the races on Mars are oviparous, um, hatching from eggs, not just the Tharks. So I don't think they did that in the film at all. I don't recall it at all with the other two. Yeah. Um, but I think it's pretty, again, pretty darn clever of him to kind of take on board the the uh, uh, presupposition or the assumption that a, a race of beings is uh, uh, reptilian and oviparous. And, he, and then he kind of asks himself, well, okay, suppose they are intelligent. Um, how would they behave if they were kind of like reptiles on our planet? And uh, at least in the novel, uh, there's amongst the Tharks very little uh, fellow feeling and empathy yeah, in the um, novel, it's sort of, yeah. one of the things they don't mention, but the idea of, like, parents taking care of their yeah. children, that's not that relevant at all in the Martian Again, culture. Again, that's a carryover from Earth reptiles. Yeah. And he, he kind of thought about that. So, well, what would that mean? And it's kind of interesting. He has to uh, provide Tars Tarkas with a little bit of sympathy and fellow feeling, but he's a very unusual Thark in that regard. And there's some kind of a backstory that explains why I don't remember the details of it. Yeah, it's an, um, it very briefly touched upon the movie, but in the yeah. book they said that there was this love story between him and uh, this other, I forget, she was a Thern or another part of the Martian yeah. group, and it was a forbidden love, and they had the child who was Sola. Right. Yeah, uh, like you said, very briefly touched on there. But again, uh, clever. Um, yeah, and then we should get to the part where he meets this princess. Yes. Deja Thoris. Right. Thoris, a princess of helium. Right. And the, her father is sort of using her as a pawn to marry 
Sabathon so they can yeah. um, we, we should explain why he wants to do this, right? And this is a, a, a backstory that's much more in the novel than it is in the film. Um, Mars is dying. So you have uh, separate uh, city-states essentially trying, trying to uh, uh, form an alliance and hopefully by doing so allow them to um, uh, uh, acquire water, which is a precious resource here. And in, in the novel, there is also some kind of huge atmosphere-generating machine that they cooperatively maintain that uh, this doesn't appear in the film at all, um, that John Carter... Uh, uh, helps them um, do that. Helps them run that thing or fix it after it malfunctions. And uh, I guess in the in the first novel, he dies on Mars. It's sort of as yeah, and they, as he's kind of watching some Tharks and, and some of the other people looking like they're going in to try and fix this thing after he's heroically opened it so yeah. they could. But then he dies there, and or then he, he wakes, wakes, yeah, he wakes up wakes back, back on, up Earth. on Earth. Yeah. Because in the movie, the we, we see sort of after he's come back from Earth in the very beginning, he's trying to get back yes. to Barsoom. We should mention Martians don't call it Mars. They call it Barsoom, and yeah. Earth is called Jarsoom. Yes. Yes. And But anyway, <laughs> so it gets some... Um, he falls in love with the princess. He's trying to make peace and also stop the marriage. And he's also trying to get this sort of, I call it MacGuffin, basically, this device that can get him back to Earth. But he falls in love and he realizes he wants to help the Martian people. Yep. And eventually, because there's also these the th- other therns, the white with the white faces and bald hair, they're the ones that he killed on Earth, and yeah. they've sort of been everywhere around the galaxy. Yeah, and the therns th- are kind of interesting. They are unlike the other Martian races in that apparently they are immortal. Yes. They cannot die. And you have a brief explanation on part of one of the therns uh, as he's he tells John Carter this, and there's a very interesting, it's all too brief, I think, monologue, essentially saying that um, because they are immortal, uh, they end up actually kind of playing games with the other yeah. races, as if it was just something to kill boredom or kill time because they're not yeah. going to die. They, again, don't explore that. That's interesting. I think there's an influence there on the part of Edgar Rice Burroughs with, he, he was familiar with um, Greek mythology, right? And uh, that, that's a kind of a common uh, uh, story device uh, in, in Greek mythology. The gods there can't die. And uh, they, they, they can't even harm each other. They can insult each other. Um, uh, they can offend each other. Uh, they can tease each other. Uh, but that's that doesn't seem to be uh, enough to fill their lives, right? So what do they do? They play with the humans, and they play the humans against each other. And we get a feeling that the therns are kind of like this in this story. It's almost as if they're kind of godlike, and they have a kind of a mm-hmm. godlike or angelic look to them in this film, right? With the like you said, the white robes and the kind of pale look powers they can transform and look yeah. like anybody at any time very much like greek mythology zeus was doing that heck all of the time <laughs> yeah so anyway to sum up the last bit of the story eventually john carter is able to save the day he kills 
Sapthon and is able to rescue Dejah Thoris. They get married. And there's sort of peace brought to Mars or J- yeah. Barsoom. Barsoom. Yeah. But one one night he's walking around and the head uh, headacor of the Therns, Matai Shang, he grabs him and does that spell with the medallion and sends him back to Earth. Yes. And then it's we get follow back to where we were in the beginning. He's left a note for his his nephews, whose name is Edgar Rice Burroughs. He leaves these specific notes and he goes to his tomb, opens it, and when it looks like, oh no, the one of uh, Matai Shang's about to kill him, John Carter was all alive all the whole time. It was yeah. uh, he faked his own death so he could get that medallion from Matai Shang and he recites a spell. He's going back to Barsoom. Yeah. And that's how the film ends. And they're setting up a sequel there, which never Yes, happened. and that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this, because a few months ago, I know we talked about The Island of Dr. Moreau, which is not a good movie. It's no. one of the most infamous disasters of all time, but yeah. it's based on a classic H.G. Wells novel, and I feel like even if it's a bomb, there's still something we can get out of it. This film, I think, is definitely better than The Island of Dr. Moreau, but I don't think it's that good, even though there are moments where I could see the potential. But it's infamous now as one of the biggest box office disasters of all time. The budget was $264 million. Wow. That makes it the ninth most expensive film ever made. It made less than two hundred fifty. Once you that you say, oh, that's only like a loss of twelve million. It's not that bad. You forget all the marketing and everything, all the extra stuff that you have to double your budget usually to make to break even. Yeah. So they probably lost close to two hundred and fifty million dollars on this. The head of Disney Studios, Disney Pictures or whatever, he resigned after this. When you look at filmmaking today, I think this explains as much of it, even as something is a huge success like Iron Man. Yeah. It's really kind of a shame. Um, You can see that they saw the potential here for a series of films, uh, just because they have all of the output of Edgar Rice Burroughs in in these uh, Barsoom Chronicles. I think that's the name of the whole series. Yes, Barsoom. Yeah. Um, But it just didn't work. And I I know I actually kind of like the film, but I know as I was watching it, I was kind of, I was, at least for our purposes, I was thinking, oh my God, what am I going to do for a philosophical themes <laughs> here for this film? And, you know, part of the, part of the reason uh, I was doing that, I realized was that this film wasn't intended to be heavily, heavy and philosophical, not at all. And that's actually, I think, somewhat faithful to the source material. It's, John Carter is not that kind of a character. Um, but even though that's the case, I think in the larger narrative structure and in the, in, the, um, in the construction of the world, there is some very interesting, for lack of a better term, philosophical uh, reflection on uh, society and the forces that shape societies. And that's of a theme with other pieces of fiction revolving around the planet Mars, not surprisingly. You know where I'm going with this, mm-hmm. War of the Worlds. Um, you have Edgar Rice Burroughs and you had H.G. Uh, uh, um, Wells in, in that uh, uh, work uh, ask themselves, what would happen to a, a, a society or a, a civilization if it was on a dying planet and it had to find a way 
to either fix that dying planet or leave that dying planet for a neighboring planet? How would they treat the uh, uh, people, the, uh, the indigenous civilizations on that neighboring planet? Right. That's kind mm-hmm. of H.G. Wells' question. And uh, 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 Edgar Rice Burroughs is, is asking similar questions in his fiction, too. And they kind of miss the mark in the film. I mean, a, a big theme in, in the, uh, the Princess of Mars is uh, the cooperation, although these are in, in the, the fighting is kind of endemic. Right. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason the fighting is is because there is a scarcity of natural resources on this world, and quite naturally, each group, each each one of the races—the red race, the green race, the white race—and there's, uh, I think, another one, a yellow one, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken. Um, of course, they're kind of looking out after their own group's best interest, so they fight over the precious resource, which is the atmosphere and water, for goodness sakes. So they were actually spot on with regard to what Mars is like, right? Pretty impressive for 1911. Yeah, and um, this, what, oh, go ahead. Oh, so you have that that kind of centrifugal pressure that, that, that uh, makes them form a, a, a global civilization that's kind of like a, a larger mirror of Greek city-states, Right. They're constantly fighting and bickering and, 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 and at war more or less constantly. Um, at the same, by the same token, though, they realize that this is a common problem they have. The, 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 the entire globe needs atmosphere and needs the water. And if they each just simply fought uh, tooth and nail for their own interests without cooperating... Um, the chances are very unlikely that they would be able to uh, find enough water to survive or maintain the atmosphere with this uh, technology they've apparently developed before Mars went too far downhill. So they have this uh, competing pressure that uh, uh, forces them to see that it's rational to cooperate at some level, right? And so they do. To some extent, but then there's all this kind of complex uh, politics involved and um, tribal loyalties and intermarriages that, uh, again, are trying to fight against this. And that's part of the reason the princess is being offered to this uh, man that's in in charge of the rival city state. Um, That's all very complex, but it's also very accurate. And they don't explore that very much in the film, Um, but it's they're in spades in the book books apparently and that leads me to believe that they really they really missed an opportunity with the film but then again i don't want to put too much blame on i think maybe they were going to explore some of that in the follow-on sequels if this thing had succeeded which is a shame because the we've mentioned earlier these books by edgar rice burroughs are you know of that almost the foundation of early science fiction. Like you mentioned H.G. Wells, but Jules Verne around that same time. And when you look at the people who were influenced by this, you see Ray Bradbury, you see Robert Heinlein, Arthur C. Clarke. I have to imagine thinking about, I can see similarities between the red planet of Mars and the planet we just discussed earlier with Arrakis, with Frank Herbert and Dune. Carl Sagan said this was one of the things that wanted him to pursue a career in science. Yes. And you read about the backstory about this film, 
it goes back to the 30s about trying to get this developed because yeah. Bob Clampett, who was the director of Looney Tunes, the man behind stuff like Bugs Bunny, he wanted to go as far back as the 30s to do this. They did test footage, but um, it didn't get very good reactions from people, and they instantly scrapped it. This would have been the first animated feature film. Um, then the Ray Harryhausen, the famous guy between like uh, Clash of the Titans and others movie, he wanted to do it. Yeah. But they figured the, the technology just wasn't there yet. Yeah. In the 80s, they uh, Disney got it, and they wanted John McTiernan, the director behind Die Hard, Red October, and Predator, to direct it with Tom Cruise playing John Carter, which in that traditional hero sense, I can kind of see Tom Cruise yeah. playing that. Tiernan said, you know what? The technology isn't there. He probably watched Dune, the David Lynch <laughs> one, and said, you know what? It really isn't there yet. So they... So they scrapped it, and then more people were still trying to do it. Robert Rodriguez, the man behind stuff like Sin City, which mm-hmm. you which you think of that special effects and the green screen that was used for that, he was. They were going to start production. He resigned from the Directors Guild of America. They did not employ non DGA members, so they had to scrap him. Hmm. So then John Favreau behind Iron Man, yeah. which I'll talk a little bit later, yeah. he decided to do it. But then he said, you know what? I want to do this superhero thing and I got big things for that. So he resigned. <laughs> then they gave it to Andrew Stanton. Andrew Stanton is the man behind almost every Pixar film, usually as a writer, but he also directed Finding Nemo, Wally, and then Finding Dory later on, the sequel to Finding Nemo. Yeah. So they gave it to him. And you just, it, all those years in development, this big budget, yeah. and then it just bombed so badly, Bach financially, that they just scrapped everything. And honestly, I think we'll never see another John Carter. I think that's probably true. And, you know, I was thinking as I was watching it, because it was such a flop, it, it kind of doomed, as it were, the franchise, so to speak. And it is a shame. I, I really, it's unlike... War of the Worlds, in that way, it's it's more of a western. I see yeah. similarities of the Tharks, and especially how he views the Tharks yeah. as we would view the Apaches, like yes. we were mentioned in the film, or other tribes and the Native Americans. And this Americans. is all again that particular parallelism is brought out much more uh, in a much more pronounced fashion in mm-hmm. the books. Um, I know uh, he does a lot in the books. Exploring um, uh, the kinds of impact that scarcity has on what is considered acceptable behavior in uh, uh, groups that are under constant threat from nature and from rival groups. And the Tharks are pretty much a, a very careful reflection of how he saw Native American tribes in that regard. And they do and think. We should mention. Edgar Rice Burroughs was a cavalry officer. Yes, so he's quite familiar with it. And uh, the parallelism in the book is pretty clear between those Apaches that were pursuing him into that cave of gold, right, mm-hmm. and the Tharks. So he, had, he, he, he relies a little bit on his familiarity with uh, the Apache when he first runs into the Tharks and he goes, you know what? Uh, yeah, they're difficult, but I can, I can handle these guys. And he eventually does. And he actually befriends them. They befriend him. And that, that's a really neat part of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I, this is going to sound strange, but in that connection, it reminded me of a, a, a 1970 film 
man, a man called Horse. With uh, Richard with Harris, Richard right? Harris. Yes. He's taken in by the Sioux. And they put him through a very grueling, as it were, initiation process and bullying and this very um, uh, painful uh, initiation procedure called the vow to the sun. And eventually what happens with him is he he, he starts to identify with the Sioux. And he feels like he is a Sioux. The same thing happens with John Carter. He considers himself not just a Martian, but a Thark. And I, I, I really liked that. And it, it seemed to me the strongest part of the film was the beginning when he is first taken by the Thark. And he's trying to figure out exactly, as it were, what his role is here. Yeah. Um, the strongest parts of the movie, I felt, were anytime he's with the Tharks and he's learning. Because in the book, what I really like about the first book, I've only read the first, I have read the others, but you're learning about the culture as he is. Yes. My biggest problem with the movie is it's, because you have those scenes, but then they would cut to the stuff with Deja Thor's or the other stuff, and that stuff just was not interesting me. It's like, yeah. let, let let us learn as he is learning. That yes. makes it easier. You're, this is the first film in a planned trilogy. Don't shove all this stuff down our throat. Yeah, I agree with that, too. And I really thought it was very clever there toward the be- beginning of that film um, when he's first captured and he's attempting to communicate with Tars Tarkas. And Tars Tarkas is trying to communicate with him. And they end up having to use gestures and so forth. Very clever. Uh, it, it again reminded me of a, a man called Horace. He's dragged into the uh, uh, Thark uh, settlement city, and he doesn't know what's going on. Are they going to kill me? What are they going to do with me? He's got to try and figure it out without being able to speak the language. It all works very well. And I thought, wow. I, I remember watching this part of the film. I was going, why is, it, why is this film considered a bomb? This is really clever. But then you're right. It pulls in the story of the other two main groups in Mars and in the princess, which is in the novel. I mean, it is. Yeah, it's called um, the novel is called a yeah. princess of Mars. Um, but it gets a little kind of. I called it Star Wars prequel esque. Yeah, that very okay. fl- the visually it was all green screen. They all yeah. wear this. You know, they're walking, they're talking to, about discussing space politics, and yeah. it was a. You know, yeah, and, get, get back to John Carter. Yeah, and and the princess that she had potential too, but um, because she's smart, she's educated, she's a physicist. She's trying to figure out this ninth ray, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, technology that the Therns have been using to play their godlike role, uh, and hopefully wrest control from them. Although it's not clear from the rest to the rest of the population of Mars that the Therns really exist either. So that's an interesting, again, reflection on the deity, right? Um, But so she's, by turns, this kind of really super tuned in, very intelligent, uh, for lack of a better term, warrior, badass. Uh, but at, at other turns, she's she's a cringy. And I don't want to, you know, t- a female, typical princess. You know, you know I don't want to. It doesn't uh, work. It doesn't wishes. work. And I think that's sort of another problem because the, the novel goes back to 1912 because this they actually came out to celebrate the novel's hundredth anniversary. Yeah. But um, you have that 1912 audiences in the book, Deja Thorne. She's not this brilliant scientist or a warrior. She's just a princess. She's a damsel in distress. 
you know, Carter falls yeah. in love with her and he's got to save her all the time. Yeah. That's going to, that's not going to go over well with the modern audience. You have to make it a bit more progressive. You have to make her a good warrior. She, like, they, they specifically when he first meets her, they have to go, she doesn't need him to yeah. rescue her. She can handle it. But then it all of a sudden own. she does. Yeah. And it's, it's just so, like, make it one way or the other. I, I wish they kind of stuck with the warrior princess, stuck with that consistently. It would be departing from the novel, sure enough. But it like, it's understandable a, adapting it to a more modern. Yeah, audience. it would have given us another interesting character. Because really, if you think about it, there are only two interesting characters, uh, or well, three, three in this film: uh, Carter, obviously, Tars Tarkas, and his daughter. And the princess doesn't quite get there. You've got to have her be as interesting, at least as interesting as those other three characters. Or this thing is going to fall flat. And it does fall flat, I think, because her character is a little flat. And it's inconsistent. Yeah. And it, with that, and one of the things I didn't like what they talk, did with John Carter is they made him sort of this brooding, sort of yeah. defeated. and Because in the novel, he's just more of a traditional, romantic, 19th century hero. He even talks about it like, I... You know, I don't know how it is, but I just charge into things head on, even if it's, you know, darn the odds. Yeah. He, I mean, this man is the inspiration for Han Solo. Yeah. He doesn't, you know, never tell me the odds. I'm just going in. So he is this romantic hero where yeah. he wants to save the princess. But this one, it's, you know, he's defeated. He doesn't want to take up any causes. He lost his fam- family in the Civil War. They're trying to make him sort of a brooding anti-hero. And I just... It doesn't quite it work. It doesn't. Sometimes, Again. like Luke Skywalker, who you know, this influenced George Lucas, another uh, influence. Yeah. You know, he didn't have this brooding, dark past. He was just this, you know, traditional kid who becomes a hero. You didn't need to add all these gray layers to him. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, and it's not even layers. It's inconsistencies again. Because mm-hmm. you see him, he's not quite as obvious to me, but it does still show he flips from the alleged brooding you know, angst-ridden existential yeah. hero to the, like you said, uh, um, yeah. Han Solo. Like, that's not yeah. a fair fight. And he goes in there just because, you know, that's not gentlemanly. Yeah. 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 But um, it's too bad. I mean, I, I, I tend to think with the source material here, uh, it might have been better for them to consider creating a uh, a series. Uh, yeah, and not necessarily a theatrical series either, a, a series for television. I, I think that might have been more effective, and especially these days with the uh, uh, technology, special effects and technology open to you. Um, you could do that on television, yeah, and, and it would give you time to develop more fully those characters, but also really get people into the, uh, you know, dive into that world and the politics of that world without it seeming rushed. And prequelish, as you said, um, it's very surface. It's very surface there. Um, they needed to take more time with it. I think. Yeah, and it is sad because I think this film has as much in has as much impact on how films, particularly in Hollywood, are made today as the very first Iron Man. Because for those who obviously don't know, the first Iron Man was a big hit. Not only did it revive Robert Downey Jr.'s career, but that set up this idea of a cinematic universe. Because at the end, there's that big teaser where they're saying, I'm here to tell you about the Avenger initiative. And here we are over a decade later, and we're getting Avengers movies practically every other month. Yeah, Because that was such a big hit. Because this film, also by Disney, which runs Marvel, 
was such a disaster is this was a huge I means two when you're when you're getting a 264 million dollar movie you're trying to make sure this thing is a hit it was a disaster their um, studio had resigned and they don't that was a risk and they don't take many risks anymore because that same year they bought Star Wars from George Lucas. Yeah. We're still getting Star Wars stuff. Right now, there's a Boba Fett TV show on right now. Yeah. There's a million other one of those. So I just then, think... The, 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 it's really a shame here because unlike with Star Wars where they're making it up as they go, and you know Lucas did that as well between first, second, and third film, he had no previously written final product to work with. Um, we have that with this series. In mm-hmm. fact... We, we, we have, most recently in 2020, a, a release that is considered canon by the Ed, Edgar Rice Burroughs estate. And, uh, of course, we have all of his works in this series. So you have all of that wonderful source material that, if not Disney, somebody could take and turn into a really interesting franchise of films, I think. And it's a shame it probably never will happen because of the fact that this thing bombed. Um, unlike a, a film we watched not too long ago, Dune. Yeah. Somebody took a chance. It, it and, had that reputation yeah. for years up until this year where they finally got it right. And you after got the right director. 60 years. You have the right technology and you had a good, a, a good adaptation for film of that first uh, novel. So now that thing's wide open before us. We're going to we're going to be presented with that world and all the political intrigues and the characters and so forth. That could happen with this too. Um, but yeah, maybe yeah, it'll be twenty fifty or twenty fifty five before somebody takes yeah, the chance. Shame. It's like I said, goes back to the eighty, I mean to the thirties yes. when they were trying to make this, and yeah. it did not pan. That's yeah. such a shame. It really is. All right, thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. You can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, where each episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. Mm-hmm.